You obviously know Kung Fu. Hi, this is Richard Norton, martial artist, actor, sometimes stuntman, now fight coordinator, joining everybody in Kung Fu Drive in podcast. Welcome to the Kung Fu Drive in podcast. Adjust your speaker box, sit back, relax, and remember, your Kung Fu may be good, but mine is better. <laughs> Joining me this afternoon from all the way down under in Australia is martial artist, actor, fight coordinator, all-around Australian badass, Richard Norton. Richard, thank you so much for joining the Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast. My pleasure, Jeff. It's uh, it's going to be fun. I'm glad to be on with you. <laughs> it's, it's really great to have you. Um, I've been a fan of martial arts movies since way back in the uh, 70s and 80s, all the way back to the Shaw Brothers stuff, uh, when it made the move into the... Uh, 80s and 90s you were front and center there with uh the likes of jackie chan and and uh cynthia rothrock so uh it's truly truly an honor to have you on the show thank you sir i appreciate that so tell me then what is your background and how did that lead to training in the martial arts to begin with look i'm uh, i'm just a typical aussie boy you know i grew up in a suburb of uh, melbourne called croydon I actually, I was one year old when I moved there. You know, in those days, Croydon would almost be considered what in Australia we call the bush, you know, not much happening out there. Railway lines at the back of our house, you know, we would always be up in the railway lines throwing stones at each other and doing all sorts of things. So a very regular childhood in that regard. Always physical, you know. I had two friends that lived in the neighborhood particularly that I hang out with and we were always kind of boxing and wrestling and doing everything else. But in those days, I mean, we're talking, you know, I'm 68, so I was born in 1950. So in the 50s, you know, in the early 60s, there really wasn't a lot around in the way of martial arts in Australia. In fact, probably judo was the predominant martial art. Um, and so it was my, my introduction to the arts just started when a new kid moved into a house opposite where I lived. Uh, named Morris Yeomans, and he was disappearing twice a week. And I happened to say, where are you going? And rather than we used to go and play pool, you know, at a little local pool house, and uh, said, oh, I'm going to judo classes. And that immediately tweaked my interest, and I sort of asked him if I could go along. So his dad used to drive us there, and it was a judo class run by a police sergeant. And uh, that was my introduction. I just loved the idea of it and got started, and that – that's where my journey in the arts began, keeping in mind that when I was 11, I was very skinny and very little for my age. Um, so a bit like cannon fighter for the older. <laughs> and it was through another friend of ours in high school that uh, he was also involved in the judo, John Rowe, his name was. And he suddenly told us, oh, there's a karate school opening up about three miles from where I lived in Croydon. And we thought, oh, we've got to go and have a look at that. And a gentleman named Tino Seberano, who's Hawaiian Filipina, had only been out in Australia maybe six months. So I was doing a demonstration and starting up a club in a kind of a church hall, which a lot of the schools were in those days. I had a look at that. It was a very basic demonstration with H. Patton Kata and a bit of soft sparring or Juke Kumite, as we used to call it in Japanese arts. And I just, 
I immediately said, this is what I want to do. I was just blown away, mainly because it wasn't, it didn't involve size and strength so much as speed and agility, which suited my size anyway. And so hence the journey began. That journey has taken you through so many styles and I'm going to try to rattle off all of these correctly, but stop me and correct me if I, if I miss anything, but you hold a fifth degree black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu uh, with the Machado brothers, uh, a fifth degree Shihan ranking in Goju Ryu karate under uh, Hanshi Tino Severano. You just mentioned uh, a ninth degree and Soke title in Zendo Kai karate uh, level six ranking in kickboxing with Benny, the Jetter Kidez uh, fifth degree master ranking in Chun Kuk Do, uh, and we, you just corrected me before we started. That is now an eighth degree master ranking uh, with the legendary Chuck Norris. Is that all correct there? <laughs> That's correct. The eighth degree just came a couple of months ago. I look, uh, Chuck, for anyone that knows or don't know, it doesn't matter. It's, uh, he runs an, an annual convention that was titled United Fighting Arts Federation. And it was a convention in held in Las Vegas. I first taught there in 1980 and have been a regular attendee and seminar teacher at, at his convention since. It had been a few years since I'd been, but um, <clears throat> they flew me over a couple of months ago to teach again. And the nice surprise was the, the Federation and Chuck personally sort of awarded me eighth degree, which which was fantastic. You know, people sort of ask me about rank and everything. And look at my age and state. It's not that the rank itself means a lot because, like, what do I do with it? I mean, you are who you are and you do what you do. Um, but it was just such a nice acknowledgement from such an old and dear friend as in Chuck. We've been friends uh, 40 years. He was best man at my wedding in Los Angeles. We used to train every morning pretty much from the time I first moved to California. So to get that sort of acknowledgement from Chuck and from such a prestigious organization as Chuck Norris Systems, as it's now called, it used to be Chun Kuk Do, uh, I just thought that was fantastic. And I, it really meant a lot to me that they would do that. That's awesome. Now, congratulations on that. But what kept that drive to keep advancing and keep learning new styles going? I mean, you, you started with judo and you went to karate, but what fueled you to keep exploring new and different styles and just keep learning well look you know my first karate style was goju goju ru which was you know japanese style of karate and as i had mentioned that was under tina sobrano the judo of course was there zendo kai started with uh, a partner of mine bob jones bob was 10 years older than i am he started with tino and goju the same time i did and he he really had a be in his bonnet to get his own system going and he wanted me to go with him which i did we started that in 1970 and uh we call it zendo kai which does not literally translate into but in our mind it basically the style represent the best of everything in progression and why i bring that up is that probably for australia it was one of the first styles modeled after a lot of the American eclectic systems where instead of, as was the case back then, that you did a style and you had blinkers on, meaning if you were Shotokan, that's all you did. Taekwondo, that's all you did. You didn't mix. There was no such thing as mixed martial arts as we know it today. But we incorporate a lot of outside combat systems, mainly because Bob used to run security in Melbourne, you know, with all the clubs and bars and everything. So we had a lot of doormen and bouncers, you know, that started training with us. 
So we needed to incorporate grappling and boxing and everything else to more or less give what was a very traditional style a somewhat more combat sort of attitude. So we, you know, people used to ask me about Zendikar. Oh, how does how the style? How does it survive now that it's a mixed martial arts world? And I basically say, well, it's business as usual because that's pretty much what we did. Of course, it's gone to a whole different level, but that's what Zendikar was about. So that's why I had an interest in various other styles due to Zendikar being about incorporating whatever would, we believed would work and make our particular fighting system a little more efficient. And I, I also want to say that I, and I've been asked that a lot, well, why, why martial arts and why are you still doing it? I know it sounds cliche, but I grew up, I didn't grow up getting beaten up by neighborhood gangs or any of that sort of stuff. And, oh, I've got to learn to defend myself. It was just an interest born from who knows what, you know, but I do believe still to this day that in, and in hindsight that it was just what I was meant to do with my life. I mean, I just loved it. I had a passion for it. I still have a passion for it. So the idea of researching other other aspects of the martial arts was just a given considering, you know, one's passion. And uh, I think that's what's kept me going. And, and, and you know, when you, have a, when you have a hunger and, you know, a yearning to learn, you will be open to new things that are exposed to you. If you're a little more closed off, and you get into what I call this realm of mediocrity where you're kind of satisfied. Well, our style's good enough. Well, I'm as good as the next person. I think that's a bit of a trap. I always was trying to find something that could offer a little bit better than what I was already doing or at least be able to add on to what I was already doing and make me a little more efficient as a martial artist. And you mentioned all these arts, but... I mean, when I look back, the one thing I wish I had done more of is a lot of the Filipino arts, you know, with the screamer and Kali and the knife work and stick fighting. I think that's fascinating. But so many, only so many hours in the day, you know, and, uh, you know, where we go. But, I mean, this, this, is, this is how jiu-jitsu started for me. And, you know, you ask about all these different arts. I, I remember, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu for me started – as a result of Chuck Norris. Chuck went to Brazil in the mid to, you know, late 80s on a holiday with uh, Bob Wall. You probably remember Bob Wall from Into yep. the Dragon fame, O'Hara and that and his wife. And they went, and of course, like any martial artist, he was asking, oh, where, what do people do here? What's a good school to go and have a look at? And he ended up in the Gracie School with none other than Elio Gracie, Hickson Gracie, Horion Gracie, and Hoist Gracie, to name a few. Mm. So there's a bit of a who's who. And there was a conversation yeah. about Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. He got to have a little role with Elio. When the funny story about that is he's on top of Helio. This is Chuck telling me. And, you know, Helio would have been in his 70s then, I guess. And, you know, he suddenly says to Chuck, oh, Chuck, throw a punch at me. And Chuck says, oh, Mr. Gracie, no, I can't do that. He said, no, no, no. Go and throw a punch at me. And he sort of half-heartedly threw a punch at him. And he said he, next minute he wakes up, he couldn't eat for three days because Helio put a, like, you know, double lapel choke on him, and uh, <laughs> which is a very funny story. But as a result of that visit, Chuck came back to the States. And because I was, you know, since 79, I was training at Chuck's house every morning with him. We had quite rigorous workouts at his house, and he brought back this tape of the early Valley Tudor matches with Hicks on Gracie. Yeah. We had a look, and it was just fascinating. We thought, wow, what is this? We'd never seen it. 
And that was my introduction to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I came back to Australia, showed a friend back here. Look, and as a result, I ended up meeting, uh, I ended up looking up Horion Gracie because Chuck brought a whole group of them out for his UFAF convention in the late 80s. He, and this, for those who know jiu-jitsu, it's a bit of a who's who, including Hickson and Horion Gracie and Hoyce and Carlos Machado and Pedro Sawyer. There was a bit of a who's who because he wanted, he wanted to expose his his Korean stylist to this new art, which was very telling, by the way, about how open Chuck was and how aware he was of the value of inc- of being inclusive of new and great arts. I mean, he to be smart enough to bring them out to introduce his clan, as it were, to this Gracie Jiu-Jitsu was, I think it was kind of groundbreaking. So anyway, that happened a couple of years. I ended up finding Horion Gracie and I rang him up. This is again in the kind of late 80s. And I said, oh, I'd love to come around. Can I do a private lesson? I'd like to see what you guys do. This is before the Gracies had any sort of school. They were actually just working out of the garage at Horion's school out in Redondo Beach. Mm-hmm. So I go out there. And, of course, my lesson that I start with is with the legendary Hicks and Gracie. And the first thing Hickson says to me is, oh, my friend, because he, you know, after a bit of chatting, he knew I had a whole stand-up background. And he says, oh, my friend, you want to put the gloves on? Because they were the days they were kind of going around and challenging a lot of the other martial arts schools to prove the efficiency of Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. And luckily for me, I was smart enough to go, no, 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 no. I just, I, <laughs> I'm just really interested in seeing what you guys do. I ended up doing eight months of private lessons with Hickson, but – I, I love telling the very first lesson was with uh, Hickson got hoist on his back. And again, for everybody, this is way before the UFC started. So right. I had to get onto the mount position. In other words, sit on Hoist's you know, stomach while he's on his back and try and stay there. And then Hoist got on top of me and I had to try and get him off. No striking involved, of course. And uh, neither of which were slightly possible for me. And I remember walking away from that little episode going, wow, I felt like a little baby on the ground with these guys. (laughs) And I remember basically thinking to myself, how much better can I be if I add this to what I already do? And the important distinction being add rather than instead of, I thought if I can add this to what I'm doing, I'll be a much, much better martial artist. And that started my journey in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I ended up through Henzo Gracie. I met Henzo and he asked me who I was training with, you know, when he found out I was doing some and I mentioned it. And he said, oh, you need to meet my cousins, the Machados. And uh, he was, uh, this was in Australia. He was going back via LA. I was going back to LA and he introduced me to the Machados. It was uh, Higan. Machado and John and Carlos. I don't think Hodger and John Jack, well, John Jack definitely wasn't in the country yet. This again is in the late 80s. And so I started training with them also in a garage out near the airport. So none of them had schools. You know, I ended up saying to Chuck, oh, I'm training with these guys, these brothers, five brothers. It's just amazing. We need to do some workouts with them. And Chuck said, Oh, well, great. Bring them out to the house and, uh, you know, we'll set up a private. And he wanted to set up a two-hour private, and I immediately said, no, you don't want to do two hours, because I already knew <laughs> it would last that long. But we, you know, brought him out to his house in Tarzana, and, you know, we started privates, and that that's, then again, a whole relationship with Chuck and the Machados and myself began. Chuck, Bob Wall, and myself were instrumental in starting them up in their very first school. 
in the valley. They ended up opening up out in, uh, you know, Redondo Beach, Manhattan Beach way. And the rest is history. So that's how it all, that all began. Yeah. It's easy to, uh, to feel that excitement uh, when you talk about it. When you first get introduced to, to Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, you get that. There's that spark that's still there when you talk about it. I'm relating to a couple of things that you talked about. Uh, Zendokai in particular being a, a mix of different styles. And uh, I just started my martial arts journey a, a few months ago. I've made it to a green belt now, and uh, the style that I study is kind of a hybrid, uh, which sounds a little bit like what Zendokai was, because it's got a base in Kenpo Karate, but uh, I'm also exposed to Jiu-Jitsu and uh, some Judo and a little bit of uh, Eskrima, too, uh, as a way to, uh, to nod to my heritage and all that. So that is inspiring to hear that you are still excited by uh, the the martial arts and uh, there's that hunger continues. Um, I'm, I'm very new to it. I'm 46, so I, I started late. But every time I go to class and learn something new, that spark uh, gets rekindled and I want to see how much further I can push myself and how much more I can learn. So I, I get it. And I, I, I feel that when I, when I come into class, I'm like, oh, well, that's something new and that really hurts, but I think I can do that. <laughs> Here's the deal, Jeff. And I often say this in, in seminars and classes. I say, first of all, well, I know, I know how complex the Filipino arts can be, but not having been well-versed in that, I'm not, not, it's not appropriate for me to comment on that. But the jiu-jitsu, I've often said that it's the most complex martial art I've ever done. And the reason being that it's so – it allows itself to evolve almost by the day, meaning a lot of traditional arts tend to stay reasonably the same. The kata don't change a lot, et cetera, because they like to pay homage to their – their roots, you know, which could be 100 years old, whatever it is. Whereas jiu-jitsu, at least with the Brazilian form, it's evolving by the day, by the week, by the month. In, in other words, things mm. that they're doing today we didn't even know about five years ago or ten years ago with what they would now call old-school jiu-jitsu. It's not a comment on what's better or anything like that. It's just that I would say embrace the complexity because most – and I'm generalizing, but I, I often say that most adults are living previously learned skills or living with. In other words, in, as a kid, they learn to ride a bike, they learn to play football, whatever it is, netball. And as an adult, as a rule, you often end up doing this job that you end up you could do in your sleep. You go home, you watch the same TV shows every night. You go to bed, you get up and do the same thing all over again, and all it's doing is waiting until you get to 60, 65 and retire and actually start living. And I said the great thing about what we do, which is what you just uh, mentioned, is that every day given we have the desire, you have an opportunity to learn something completely new, and you have an opportunity to put your body through drills and, and exercises that keep you very much in the moment and allow you to behave mentally and physically in, in an extraordinary way, an extraordinary manner. And this need never end. There's a, there's a guy called Buckminster Fuller wrote a book called The Critical Path, and it's, a, it's quite a complicated book to read. You've almost got to be a rocket scientist to read it. But he, there's a great thing that he talks about, and I'm paraphrasing about goal setting, like that why what the idea of goals never being as fulfilling as you imagine they will be once you attain them and i mean example might be i said i grew up in croydon and so i'm get started in karate and we have a local karate 
championships. I said, oh, man, if I could just compete and win that, I'd be so happy. That would be good enough for me. I'd achieve, you know, something, blah, blah, blah. And so I compete and I win. Oh, okay. Maybe the Melbourne Championship. Imagine if I could get into that and win that. Then the Australian, then the world. And it's an example of what he's saying is that goals are never as fulfilling as you believe they will be once you attain them because it's all designed to keep bodies in motion. That you keep setting new goals and new parameters and trying to learn new things and trying to improve this and that. In other words, never accepting mediocrity. If you've got an absolute passion I'm talking about, you know, which which I do for the arts. And I thought that was very, very telling. And that's why I think we learn one thing. I, I hate my least favorite word in the English language is mediocrity. I think there's mediocrity in all forms of our, our city life, our country life and everything where people are happy enough. Well, I'm good enough. Well, I'm okay. And I often say to my students, you, sh you don't want to be the general GP, not knocking that. You want to become like the brain surgeon or the heart specialist, you know, or the lung specialist. You want to behave in such a manner of excellence that the average person looks at what you do and has no comprehension of how you even do what you do. And that involves never stopping, never stopping. You know, you look at uh, uh, whether it's a flower or a bird or a, a tree or a person, anything that stops still long enough is probably dead, right? So uh -huh, right, right. when we get in the arts and we go, well, I'm a master Norton, I've got enough knowledge, I'm good enough. For me, you've kind of died, you know. I think you should never assume you're good enough. You should always be striving for perfection in what you do. And I believe perfection is absolutely unattainable, but the journey toward it is not and that's kind of what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely relate. Um, obviously, I'm not the youngest or the fastest in class anymore, but I will put money down that I am probably one of the hardest working guys in class, only because uh, I I want to feel that accomplishment for myself. Uh, and honestly, I don't care if I ever move beyond white belt. Uh, as long as every time I go out there, I learn something new and I pick up something else, and uh, I I feel that movement. Yeah, and, and, and you've already hit on it. It doesn't you, – you cannot keep comparing yourself. Well, I'm not the strongest, I'm not the fastest, I'm not the best. Whenever we compare ourselves, you'll either be better than some, so you get a bit of an ego, or you're going to be less than some and you start to get a bit down on yourself. I mean, it's, it's a cliche, but again, it literally is the battle within yourself. When I grade people, I've always said, I don't just grade you on your ability, I grade your, you on your ability to try. As long as you are doing 100%, and as long as you've achieved 100% of what you individually are capable of, then that's worthy of reward, whether in rank or accolades or whatever. Because you're never going to be as good as everybody else. Nobody can, not everybody can be a world champion. There's, there's only one winner in, you know, it doesn't matter whether there's 20, 30, 40, 50 in a tournament. So what does that mean? You're, you're going to stop now? And that's, that's all ego-based. You know, of course you want to set goals and you want to be the best, but still be realistic, set a realistic goal. And, and how, what better than to have arts and people at 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, or even 80 can actually still be involved in. And we as martial artists need to accommodate that, make it a safe playing ground, a safe environment for those sorts of people to, uh, to be involved in the arts. Look, I just did an article with somebody on longevity in the arts and I said, this this business of having to be the best in your school and as an instructor, well, I have to beat everybody and I can't let my students beat me. 
I said, you got to get over yourselves, you know, because given that you're, say, 40 and you have students that are 20, and given that you all stay healthy and you all keep training, age itself will dictate that they will all beat you. They, it has to be that way. So, you know, Helio Gracie was 94 a year before he died, Horian told me, he's still doing drills with his brothers and doing a bit of rolling. He couldn't have beaten a competitive blue belt, but so what? To be involved in his passion, his life passion at 94, I just thought it doesn't get better than that. And I think we need to remember it's just just be involved in the activity, do the best you can. And otherwise, you know, you expect too much. You're just not going to last. Your, your ego will squash you and you'll end up sitting on the couch and being a, gee, I could have, well, if only I would have, you know, type of person. Yeah, well, I, I hope my effort at Drive uh, uh, does you proud. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll be checking, Jeff. All right. All right. Being in a, you you all say right. you gave up because it's too hard. I'm going to come and kick your butt. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So back to uh, your early years. Uh, you got into bodyguard work uh, and wound up protecting the likes of the Rolling Stones and Linda Ronstad, Stevie Nicks. How did you get involved in that line of work? Well, that also came as a result of Bob Jones because Bob, again, when we started Zendikai, Bob was already had a quite a fierce reputation as a street fighter. And when I say street fighter, from working doors for so many years and having a lot of people working for him at clubs, pubs, and I often say we worked at discos, but I, I say every time I say disco, they really, <laughs> that really dates me. <laughs> I remember them. Yeah, I know, unfortunately. But – so, you know, when I started with Bob, we got to be very good friends. And, of course, you know, Bob got me uh, working on the doors of the discotheques around Melbourne. So I started as a bouncer, doorman, whatever you usually want to call it. And um, so that was my intro into the real world of, of kind of the streets in a, in a reasonably protected sort of way, meaning that you always had other people working the doors with you, whether it's one, two, four or whatever. But... And it was also a product, again, of Zendikai in the early years. And through that, uh, there's an entrepreneur in Australia named Paul Dainty who uh, got us to do security for our version of Woodstock. It was called the Sunbury Pop Festival. And this was in the early 70s, and uh, we worked security with hundreds of our guys uh, because, by the way, Zendikai got huge. We had over 500 schools throughout Australia at one stage. So we worked that Paul Dainty then happened to call up one day, and again, I'm paraphrasing the whole conversation, but when asked us, he said he was bringing out the Rolling Stones and would we be interested in doing personal security for them? So, of course, Bob jumped at that and he brought me on board with him and that started my bodyguard career. Uh, we worked with him and, and the sort of job I used to do with bodyguarding, it's really a, a more of a word of mouth thing meaning that it started with him. Paul brought out people like Linda Ronstadt, James Taylor, David Bowie, Fleetwood Mac, and I ended up working with ABBA, you know, I worked with ABBA for quite a while, which was amazing. So it came as a result of that first job with the Rolling Stones, and that was in 1973. And uh, so, you know, I noticed, you know, you had a little question about, like, why and how. It really just came as a, as a product of the environment I was in. Meaning, I'm in a school. I'm Bob's partner. His right hand man was in the Kai, and most of our students were doormen or whatever. So it was just a natural thing that, as chief instructor, that I got involved in that same sort of line of work. It wasn't that I sought after it. 
And it didn't even feel weird or strange to me. It was just a natural extension of the training we did in our school, which, again, was very reality-based or, or combat-ready, you know, our form of martial arts. Now, how old were you when you started the bodyguard work, the bouncer work? Well, it was 1973, so I was 23 years old. Oh, well, bouncing, no, bouncing work as a teenager. Yeah, I would have been like 17 years of age. <laughs> 17 and a, and a bouncer. Wow. So at 17, you were a bouncer, then a bodyguard. Did you ever consider a safer, more sensible job? Or were you always wired for that kind of adventure? No, no, I don't think I was. But it's like I just said, it was just a product of the environment. It just kind of happened. It's not like I went out looking in a newspaper for jobs and looked up bodyguarding or door work and thought, oh, that'd be good to do. Do you know what I'm saying? It just came as a result, again, of my passion and involvement in the martial arts. And by the way, even as I look back as a 17 and 18-year-old, thank God I was surrounded by older guys that were so, so experienced in the street and what they did. I mean, it was the most amazing learning ground for me because I wasn't I wasn't a street kid in the sense that I, as I said earlier, though I'm always getting the fights or anything like that. It was a, it was a very different mentality for me to be doing that sort of work. But I, I loved it. I mean, it's, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade the experience for the world. And I ended up doing the bodyguard work for God, 25 years. You know, when I went to the states in '79, I continued on with Fleetwood Mac and James Taylor and these sorts of people and. And it was quite a long time, you know, I was in the biz. So it was, again, great journey. But, yes, and don't. I also want to mention, by the way, as far as how straight-laced I was, because straight from school, you know, I went and worked in the immigration department in here. The Commonwealth Department of Immigration was called. So I did counter work for about 10 years whilst training in the morning at lunchtime at night, you know, teaching six, seven days a week. And I was also just getting leave without pay to go and do the initial touring with the bands. So I also know what that nine to five is like. And, you know, I understand that. And I left in 79 when I decided to go and work in the States. That was through Linda Ronstad wanting me to go and work full time for her in California. So, um, yeah, that's how what how that all started. Now, when I think of bodyguards, especially nowadays, um, I always picture the giant guys with no neck. Did your martial arts training give you a different kind of edge as a bodyguard? Well, I think you know one of the main reasons I had such longevity is exactly because I didn't look like that. I mean, I was always you know we trained hard as anybody. You know, I was always in amazingly good shape, but. I think one of the draw cards for myself and Bob and particularly myself was I looked like just a member of the band. You know, they a lot of them didn't like necessarily that big kind of scruffy guy with arms folded looking like a tank stand, standing over them. I mean, some did. You know, some of the artists did like that. But the people I work with, like a James Taylor and Linda, were very much they, – they felt a lot more comfortable without that sort of heavy overture and presence to wherever they went. They kind of had a confidence in me and my ability, of course, and Bob's. So I think uh, the fact that I didn't have a big neck and I wasn't huge, I could blend in. I used to – you know, everywhere they went when I was in the States, wherever they went for meals or holidays or whatever, I was with them. And you could be sitting having a meal because we established such close friendships. It just didn't look out of place. But they were comfortable knowing if the shit did suddenly hit the fan that there was somebody there that could deal with it. And importantly, 
you know, I had a real affinity to the, the protocols and the etiquette that goes with being a martial artist, the respect, the courtesy and everything else, having started in a traditional system. I believe that helped me a lot in also getting longevity as a bodyguard because the one thing they knew is that I would never, never haul off and just punch somebody for no reason, even though a lot of the band members used to give me so much shit. I mean, I remember Waddy Wachtel, one of the guitarists, or this Danny Korchmar in the bus, well, I play guitar. You see me play guitar every day. When are we going to see you punch somebody, you know? <laughs> but I also knew the very last thing they would want is to see that happen because the one thing that was obvious and even through their lawyers that if I punch somebody, it wouldn't be Richard Norton punching a fan. It would be David Bowie's bodyguard or Linda Ronson's right, right, bodyguard. Right. So it was a very bad reflection on them. Forget about the civil cases and everything else. So a certain amount of restraint was very desirable from them for obvious reasons. And I believe the the balance of martial and art paid a big place in having the right temperament to do that sort of work. And, you know, I mean, I, it's probably a lot more of that is missing today in a lot of today's mixed martial arts world. I'm not saying it all is, but anyway, I believe, I believe that balance. You know, Rodney King, you've probably heard of. Rodney did a great blog on that with his crazy monkey and, you know, we, we spent a lot of time talking. He was so on the page when he talked about there's so much martial but not a lot of art and the balance is the art, meaning that, you know, you've got all these physical and quite deadly, well, deadly, some would argue that, but in a lot of art's deadly skills. If you don't have the oversight of the and the protocols of the bowing and the respect for each other and et cetera, et cetera, it goes with the traditional art. But in some ways, you're almost putting loose cannons out on the street because it doesn't take you that long in mixed martial arts to teach somebody to be, you know, a bit of a threat to the untrained person. So we need to let them know that there are protocols. You line up according to rank. You do do a bit of meditation. You know, you will bow to each other. And it's not the physical act of bowing. It's more whether or not your personality will allow you to just humble yourself to a fellow training partner in, in the school dojo, whatever you want to call it. And, and I absolutely agree. You look at the samurai warrior. I mean, they, they it wasn't all about the sword. They had flower arranging, you know, chano yu, the tea ceremony, heiku, you know, one syllable poetry. There was lots of balancing factors that to me tended to make them all rounded gentlemen that also happened to be amazing swordsmen. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So the balance I yes, think, is essential and I think my early years helped, as I keep saying, to give me that sort of ten temperament to be around people like like the rock stars that I work with, again, so they could feel completely safe, but just knowing that they haven't got a loose cannon is going to really make them look bad by hauling off and mowing through dozens of fans. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you started out, it doesn't sound like you were trying to get in front of the camera. So how did that all lead to acting in roughly 100 film and TV projects over your career? Yeah. Once again, common denominator there is Chuck Norris. Because, you know, with Zendikai, Bob went over to America in the uh, middle 70s, maybe a bit later than that. I think it might have been like 78. Met with Chuck and ended up asking Chuck to come out to Australia. This is very early in Chuck's career, and he, he had just released a film called Good Guys Wear Black. And that was being released in Australia. So he came out to do some promotion uh, along with coming out and being a guest demonstrator at our tournaments. And by the way, this is the first introduction to kickboxing in Australia. 
Um, my partner Bob was instrumental in that with a PKA, Professional Karate Association, all of that. And we were doing tournaments in the different states in Australia. Chuck was demonstrating his system and style, and I was demonstrating different martial arts, Okinawan weapons. I used to do a demo with the Sai and Katana and the bow stuff. We ended up just getting on like a house on fire. As I've always said, we became good friends. He said, if you get to California anytime, look me up. You know, I'd love to do some training, which you can imagine for a little Aussie kid, that was like, oh, my God, how good with that? Yeah. So I thought I went in 79 <laughs> working with Linda Ronstadt, and uh, I called Chuck and started working out every morning. He was in the early stages of pre-production on a film called The Octagon, first kind of ninja-type movie. He knew I could handle weapons and asked me if I would play his main nemesis in The Octagon. And so I, we spent months with his brother Aaron and Chuck and rehearsing and working out all the fights for the Octagon in Chuck's backyard. I played that role. Of course, I get to meet Tadashi Yamashita, the Ree brothers, Simon and Philip Ree, and a whole host of others. And I thought, oh, my God, how good is this? You know, first of all, <laughs> I'm meeting all these martial arts. I'm getting to involve my martial arts in this new form of employment and actually getting paid for it. So that was when I thought, this is this is pretty cool. So I did some more movies with Chuck uh, and got a, my first lead was Force 5. A gentleman named Pat Johnson, was who used to be a partner of Chuck's, was a fight coordinator and introduced me to Fred Weintraub, who was the producer of Enter the Dragon. And Bob Klaus, who directed Enter the Dragon, was the director of Force 5. So I auditioned along with 100 other martial artists, including Bill Wallace and Keith Vitale and Joe Lewis, and I ended up getting one of the five leads. So that's when I started to head out in my own direction. You know, a lot of the movies I did, Jeff, as you know, are what we would call loosely call low-budget or B-grade movies, but I went to the Philippines and Greece and Europe and Thailand and everywhere doing these movies and just had the time of my life. I'm sure. It was really, you know, I thank Chuck for that that intro. Uh, and I, I just want to sort of say, by the way, to people listening, because people always go, oh, gee, how lucky are you? But I have a thing now that I say that, yes, Chuck introduced me to the Octagon, which got me introduced to other people in the entertainment industry, which got me to audition. But when I auditioned for Force 5, there was literally 100 of the best martial artists in America vying for roles. And I remember distinctly going, what am I doing? First of all, I got a funny accent because back then the Aussie <laughs> accent was just very strange for them and couldn't understand it. And I'm up against the most amazing martial arts. What hope have I got, you know? And anyway, I ended up auditioning because I'd been training incredibly hard before going to America and, of course, with Chuck. It ends up being we're down to the final 10. And it was, it was such a change of attitude for me when I finally went, wow, I'm in the final 10. I must have what they're looking for. What's going to make me stand out from the other five that don't get it and be one of those leads? And I, I used to do a lot of positive imagery or visualization in those days, visualize results that I wanted, ended up getting the lead. So my attitude became from that point on, Instead of why me, I started to say, why not me? I've got the skills that everybody else has. And it was a very, very moving sort of moment for me and a change of attitude that held me in good stead for future roles and everything else. You may ask why I didn't do bigger things. I believe I could have. 
I believe also that I didn't have the same passion for movies that I did for martial arts, that I was happy enough just to be working, making an income that gave me a chance to spend more time in the different karate schools around the place, and I was happy with that. If, if I'd have been really serious about developing an A-list role or, or career, I believe I would have spent as much time in acting school as I was in the karate school, but obviously that wasn't the case, but wouldn't trade that for the world. Well, uh, you know, you didn't just do the American films. You're also a veteran of Hong Kong cinema, which for martial arts movie fans like myself is the, the holy grail. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. But, you know, you worked with the likes of Jackie Chan and Sammo Hung and a lot of those Golden Harvest studio legends. And they have reputations for being really exacting and demanding with their film work. Uh, how did you survive all of that? And how different is it? to film there as opposed to here in America. don't know how I survived, Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> you know, listen, I, I remember being on a plane heading off to do Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars, which you know, was the Classic. first movie I did with Samo directing. For those who don't know, Samo Hong is like big brother to Jackie. Yin Bill was little brother and Samo's brother. They're, they're very much into pecking order. And Samo was already like the Steven Spielberg of Hong Kong movies, again, just to educate people. So I'm off on the plane thinking, oh, maybe I can do this and I can throw this kick and this punch. Of course, I get there. And I'm also expecting, having done American movies, a 12-hour workday, wow, what a rude awakening. You know, I, I was there for quite a while doing bits of dialogue, which wasn't that important to them in those days. It was more about the fight scenes. When we actually started the first fight, which for me was with Summer Hong, it was three and a half weeks, seven days a week, 20, and I was on the set 18 hours a day for three and a half weeks, seven days a week. That's what it took. I've never, after three days into it, I still, and I've said this in a lot of interviews, I got back to my hotel room and I said to myself, if I can get through this, I can get through anything. Because the timing <laughs> was so radically different. There was no rehearsal. You rehearsed on camera. There was no script, so you had no idea what or why you were doing whatever you were doing. You just had to copy the coordinators or the assistant directors or Sammo Hung. You know, you never knew who was going to actually sort of direct on any given day. So you were really in the wilderness, and, and it was an amazing experience just putting it together as you went, not knowing how much longer it's going to go because, I, thankfully, Sammo really liked me, and I think one of the reasons is through – some advice of a Japanese actor named Shoji Kurata. Kurata was a Japanese actor who'd done like 40 movies, very well known there. And I got on really well. He's such a gentleman. And I, you saw after the first couple of days of fighting how frustrated I was getting. That, And he said to me, he said, basically, Richard, he's, you know, without sounding like him, he said, you know, the, this is their movie set. They believe they're God's gift to martial arts. They'll do the way they want to do it. They're not interested in what you have to say. If you really want longevity in the industry here, just don't say anything. If you're asked to do it 30 times, do it 30 times. And I took that advice, and and I think that's what helped because there was a history back then of Jackie even telling me that a lot of a lot of even American actors would come out immediately. All they'd want to do is show Jackie how tough they were. And even back then, he was over that. He said, I've been hit and punched by everybody. He just wanted to make a good movie. This is why a, a lot of their 
a lot of the actors that go over end up being doubled by the Hong Kong stunties, including myself. It's only because Jackie knows them and trusts them and everything else. But I, I was always in, you know, amazingly good shape. I took as many bumps as I wanted. I never said a word. And I think that really struck a chord with Samo and Jackie. Jackie used to take me shopping at all the little camera shops around Hong Kong. And Samo would take me into the editing suite for the two hours that we weren't on the set or whatever or sleeping and look at an edit. But that was the way they decided how long the fight would be. They would just go in each day and go, okay, okay, and they would decide which direction the fight should go, how long it should go. There was no such thing as a master like we would do in America with then just coverage because they felt a master would just lock them into a specific fight. And they wanted to be very, very loose and very free-flowing and open to anything, which was – Incredible. I mean, that's why their fight scenes are so amazing, if not unbelievable for a Western audience, but still amazing in their, their, their demonstration of excellence as far as wire work and everything else. But uh, listen, I tell you, it, it was tough and the contact was virtually full when it came to the body. I still I have a little white, black and white video footage of rehearsing my fight with Samo and he's he, he's hitting me with a barefisted uppercut under the chin. I had to put my face in front of camera. I, all I found was a little bit of cotton wool to put in my teeth because I didn't want to crack my teeth. And he smacked me under the chin because I wanted to see my face contorting in slow motion. So I'm thinking, oh, my God, so this is what it's like here. But you know, I, they respected that I still would do it. I'd jump in there and wouldn't complain, and that's how I ended up. At one stage, I was the only Westerner asked to do more than one movie with Jackie. This was aside from his American movies, and so that was that was quite nice. I, and, and again, Jeff, I, I, I don't believe I had any abilities better than anybody or else, else around it today. I think I was just smart enough to realize, bury your ego, shut your mouth, do what they want you to do as many times as they wanted and you could have a career in this and that's how it worked out. Yeah, a great career again, by the way. Uh, and to, to speak to that longevity, uh, I recently interviewed Dennis Rule, uh, the writer and director of, a, of an indie film that I know that you know about called Unlucky Stars. Mm -hmm. and, and it pays tribute to that whole golden age of Hong Kong cinema and it features a fight that is a direct homage to that fight scene between you and Samo and Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. Uh, how does it feel to see that your work is still impacting and inspiring people today? Look, it's fantastic. I, you know, I, I had I had meetings with with Dennis. You know, we chatted about all that. And he rang me about that, and I looked at the fights and thought it was amazing. And I I was thrilled because you got to remember when you're doing at least for me when you're doing you you have no there's no thoughts of gee in ten years how will this look or what will people think. It's just the job you were doing today. It's very much in the moment. In fact, I was just last night, I mentioned I work with ABBA. I was watching Benny talking about ABBA and, uh, you know, how long ABBA's been in the limelight and shows, stage shows and movies. And he said there was no way they ever imagined that people would even remember ABBA or any of their songs a year or two after they were in vogue and in fashion. He said there was there was no perception that people would still be paying such homage to their work. I think it's the same with what we do in movies. It's only later on when somebody like Dennis makes a movie like that or somebody makes reference that it's you get tickled by it. It's fantastic. But there is no way at that time that you think that's what's going to happen with your work. I mean, you just 
you took it's it's that week's pay <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not to go down in history books and I, I knew at the time that Jackie was amazing, but again, who would have thought that still this much longer, he's still doing what he's doing. I mean, you have no concept of that. You don't know whether he's going to be the flavor of the week and disappear, but to have worked with such a maestro of the martial arts as Jackie Chan and Sammo Hong, I mean, I wouldn't, again, thank you, yeah. universe. I mean, what an incredible experience <laughs> to have done some work with those with those lads, because it's just amazing of what they do. Yeah. Well, you're still going strong today, by the way, of course. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, well, yes, I am. I'm still in the industry, which, which is, a, you know, I'm really so thankful for. As you're probably aware, I'm more, there's not so much of the acting work. In fact, you know, I had a part in Mad Max as well as doing fight coordinating on it. Um, had a nice little role fight scene with Charlize Theron. As you saw, I got headbutted by Charlize. And I often say, if you're going to get headbutted by somebody, it may as well be by Charlize Theron. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Even though I was supposed to headbutt her, but because she had a bad neck injury from a previous incident, uh, not in that movie, I, I actually suggested to George Miller, I said, look, better she headbutts me, which she loved the idea of that. It just brought her to life and the fight to life when I get smacked in the face by her she and she's such an amazingly intense actor that it was uh it was quite a thrill but anyway point being that now i'm sort of you know i did uh, mad max x-men suicide squad ghost in the shell right. just finished a ben affleck movie called triple frontier and so it's more in the fight coordinating realm but considering for those who don't know i remember reading the stats on the screen actors guild which is our kind of our union out of 360,000 members, they said at one stage, if you averaged out all the wages of the top earners like the Tom Cruises and everybody else, if you average out everybody's wage, 5% of all those members can make a full-time living out of doing movies. 10% can do it with a second job. The rest forget about it. So to still be in the industry 40 years later and actually making a living out of it, I feel very privileged. And if that means being behind the camera as a fight coordinator and taking all the knowledge I gained from being an actor, then so be it. Still loving the journey and still being involved in the martial arts as a result. Yeah. Now, speaking of that, what do you think of the state of martial arts in entertainment today? Is it well represented? Oh, I think it is. I mean, there's really an incredible cross-section. It's changing, and it has to change. You know, look at look at the early Seagal movies. You know, it started out around, so, oh, my God, look at this guy, because nobody had ever seen Aikido demonstrated on camera. Suddenly, people get bored. Uh, all right, what else can you do? So then he's got to start running and doing things that he's not really well suited to and varying his fight scenes. Look at Van Damme. There's only so many times you can do the splits and throw spinning heel kicks and everything. It starts to evolve. Now you've got a lot of the extreme, this incredible wire work and acrobatics, a la what the Chinese were doing way back, but in probably a little more um, sort of sophisticated manner. But it just keeps changing. So I, I think, you know, martial arts is pretty well represented. And you'll find some movies that are totally unbelievable in their acrobatic display as per what I find extreme martial arts i don't see any practical purpose but i totally appreciate the athleticism of that it's like a gymnastics floor display 
And uh, mm. but then you get some that just are very much versed in MMA, and it's just very down and dirty, almost old school, you know, uh, reality based combat. Because we went through the era of Vietnam films and kickboxing and karate films and all of that, mixed martial arts is now in vogue. You know, uh, so uh, if if you really do your homework, you, you'll find a representation of just about everything I believe out there. Um, what do I think about it? It's entertainment. You know, you know what's happening on screen, regardless of what people like to think, is certainly not real. It's 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 designed to work for camera and for the character and work for a storyline. So of course it's it's going to be you're going to take what we call cinematic license and do things that not particularly rule. I mean, you know, people would look even a, a fight scene where a guy got, gets knocked down 20 times and keeps getting up, and I hear the argument, ah, oh, nobody could do that. You knock somebody in the head once, they're going to be knocked out. Well, I would ask them to look at a professional Muay Thai match where these kids in Thailand are getting shin kicked round after round, three minute, five three-minute rounds, getting punched, getting elbows, they don't go get knocked out. So it, it, the human body has an amazing amount of resilience to actually getting knocked out and or finished. So one could argue that there's a certain reality based on the individual doing the fighting. Right. Well, uh, what do you bring to your fight coordination when you're uh, when you're doing that work, given your extensive martial arts background? I would say the biggest thing I bring is my ability to bring drama to the fight. And what do I mean by that? The fact that I did, you know, whatever it was, 80, 100 movies, you know, television, all that sort of stuff, I did have to study acting. <laughs> now, a, long, a lot would argue you didn't go very far with that, but <laughs> I still understand the medium. I understand character and script and and intent within a scene, all the wants and all of that sort of aspect aside from the physical. So I, I think what's worked well for me, like working with Margot Robbie and, you know, I trained her up in the Gold Coast for quite a while and and then for quite some time before the start of Suicide Squad, did the same with uh, Scarlett Johansson. They sent me to New York and L.A. to train Scarlett, ended up doing the whole movie in New Zealand with her, looking after her fights and making sure she looked good on screen. And I think what what the connection was that I would say to them, look, physicality, there are people that can do anything these days on camera. There's such amazing athletes. But you guys – the Academy Award winning actors or close to you bring the drama and what we need in a fight scene is drama it used to be when I did it you'd have drama 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 the drama stops you do a fight scene that might not relate to anything and then there's more drama and then there's another fight you put six fight scenes in and you could sell it to anybody those days are gone and I would say to Scarlett and, and Margot, the camera is on you. You're you're the actor. If we can keep the camera on you, I would rather make the fight scene a lot more uh, doable for you and basic and have you do 80 to 90% of your own action and for you to sell the in-betweens. Because the one thing we do know, I, I once said to Scarlett, look, if I just slapped you in the face right now just out of the blue – you would get an emotional reaction. You'd either be really pissed off at me and want to fire me or you'd be scared shitless. Why did you do that? Whatever it is, and that's the way fights are. You know, whether you're a professional fighter, it's that walk to the ring that's the worst for fighters because that's when the doubts, am I going to win, am I going to get my head kicked in, et cetera, et cetera. Once it kicks off, you do what you do. 
But as they say, even the most confident fighter with a plan, it all goes to shit when you first get punched in the face. So there's drama, and that's what I believe I have a skill. I can understand the story of the fight. Why is the fight happening? What happened before it? What's the emotional content of the fight? At the beginning, you know, a third of the way through, two-thirds of the way through, and at the end, because there's a journey within that fight depending on whether you're winning or losing, how many people are you fighting. Otherwise, it becomes like so what I call clinical. Yes, you know, this is why when stunt doubles do it, and God bless them, you know, I've doubled people myself, they're often too perfect for me. And having been in the real world, no fight is ever perfectly executed. And I would rather have an actor that's a little untidy and a little off the mark, but at least believable. You keep the camera on them. They bring that emotion in between the beats. And I just think that's gold for a director and for the audience. I think they go along much more readily on that journey than watching just a whole clinical, physical display, which I tend to think happens in a lot of uh, a lot of these kind of super films now, whether it's Marvel, DC or whatever. So that's that's what I believe is an understanding of the drama is I believe what I can – that's the difference I make because I'm certainly, again, don't have better skills than anybody else out there coordinating or doing that stuff or even people that would like to do that stuff. But I think I just bring a little bit more of a complete package when it comes to designing, choreographing and bringing, again, a story to that fight that lends itself to character and to story. Now, beyond acting and fight coordination, you've continued training. You've also become an instructor with your own Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. Uh, Tell me about that, and is it more or less demanding than being an action film star? You know what? It's just different. There's there's actually – film is incredibly demanding when you start because – it's like a big freight train. You know, you do your pre-production, but once shooting starts, it's an old saying, time is money. And you're often on the set 14 hours a day, you know, six days a week, and it never ends. And there's a lot of demand. Everybody wants a fight that's a little bit different than what's been done before. You've got actors to train. Are they up to scratch? Are you up to scratch? There's a lot of pressure into putting on celluloid a level of excellence that in 10 years you can look at and go, wow, that's still amazingly good. In other words, again, you can't just settle for mediocrity. So that's incredibly demanding in a different way. The thing about running or teaching for me is – It's just business as usual. It's absolutely my passion. I love teaching seminars. I love teaching classes because it keeps me in the moment as far as and very up to date. Every time I do a seminar, I find I do more research. I don't want to do the same thing as I did last time. Watch something more current in my demonstration of technique. So it's a good motivator for me. Yes, it's stressful, not when I actually do it, but leading up to it, merely because, again, I want to be – the best I can be. And I and I realize that a lot of times they call me in, you're on show. They want to sort of have a look at Norton. Oh, is he getting a bit old now? Is he slowing down? Is he getting a bit of a belly on him? So there's a certain expectation. I like that pressure because I want to I want to be a good role model. I mean I'm 68 and a half, you know, I'm not off far off 70. And I want to show people that it doesn't it's not over when you're 40 or 45. You can still be actively involved in doing doing good work. So I guess, again, my answer is just different, different pressure in a different way. At least a movie is a finite amount of time. When you're running schools and clubs, it never ends until you actually close your schools down. Um, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu for me, you know, it's Team Norton Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I've got a website that's, you know, um, 
our normal stuff, www.richnortonbjj.com. And, and it's really setting up just training drills. Why BJJ? It's just It just became the thing for now. I would like to think that eventually my offerings would be in all forms of reality-based um, fighting uh, because, again, I've had more years in stand-up than I have in the groundwork, but I love the jiu-jitsu. And I would also want to, going to look at incorporating uh, film fighting, trying to give some guidance to other martial artists that are looking at a career in movies and help with the experience I've had as far as how to put a fight scene together for film, put it on camera, etc. So I've got a few strings in the bow that I still you know, can put out there. It's, it's always a matter of time. You know, it takes a lot of time to do that sort of stuff. And you're competing with so many different other people. But hey, again, I, I love the journey. I, I never ever want to imagine not doing martial arts and not being a martial artist. I, I don't care. You know, I surely I can't operate like I did 20 years ago, but that's okay. You know, I try and look at what I have, not what I don't have. And, and that's important. People, I believe there's so many people these days are looking for a psychological crutch to now not have to participate fully anymore. Oh, well, I'm getting too old. Well, my back's a bit bad. Oh, but my knee's not so good. All these excuses and reasons why you can't get in there and participate, at least to the best of your ability. And I, I refuse to accept that. You know, Benny the Jet is a great one to talk to like that. He. He said to me the same sort of thing, psychological crutches. He will never utter the words to himself, I'm getting older now. I have to slow down. I've got to start taking it easy. And I really took that to heart and I said, what a great attitude to have. Sure, it means you've got to be smart about what you do. I mean, I don't kick people in the head anymore. I reckon I still could, but I don't need to, so I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny because my, uh, my next question was going to be, how long are you going to keep up training? But obviously, that's ridiculous because you're just going to keep it up. But let me twist it a little bit. Um, what are you going to be doing in terms of training from here on out? Um, just the same. I still stretch. I still do my kicking training, still do kata training. I do a lot of grappling training. I think I'm attracted to grappling because literally it is easier on my body, meaning when you start doing ballistic striking and snap punches and everything else, I've had a little bit of trouble on my right shoulder. Unfortunately, <laughs> getting back to the Hong Kong movies, I stripped a lot of cartilage off the bone. I didn't realize how much damage I was doing, but I had shoulder surgery where they cleaned it up, and he said it was a whole lot of particles, all these particles floating around, and it's through falling on it, and he said literally two falls could have done the damage you've done, but I've literally done it hundreds of times, crashing into walls and taking big falls on the ground because as people probably realize you can't break fall in a movie you have to fall like a bag of crap and i did a lot of damage so hence i like the grappling because i can demonstrate a lot in a lot kind of softer manner on my body and still be efficient providing i'm training with the right people so there's there's that attractiveness to it and and again as i said way earlier in this podcast that the idea of the evolution and the continual learning within the jiu-jitsu is something that i just really embrace and i love the in-the-moment problem-solving of being on the mat in the jiu-jitsu sessions. So, yeah, I, listen, I, again, never say never, but I don't see myself ever not doing it. My body may one day dictate that I have to, but until that happens, in fact, it's like my last, I had lower back surgery probably due to grappling, but 
it, it wasn't a big deal, but I said to the doctor, which this he's a neurosurgeon as well as a you know back specialist, and he liked it. I said, Doc, I said, I'm in the Grand Prix. I'm pulling into the pit stop. I want you to put a new set of tires on me and put me back out on the track. Just staying in the pits is not an option, and he laughed. He said, I'm going to use that. And that, <laughs> that's kind of my attitude to it. That's excellent. So inspiring. That's awesome. Um, all right, uh, I, I'm, we're, we're going to start wrapping it up. So, are you uh, ready to do a quick lightning round just to have a little bit of fun before we sign off? Okay, whatever that means. Yes, go ahead. All right. So here's how it works. I'm just going to throw out a, a quick uh, tidbit to you and give me the the first uh, answer that comes to your head. All right. So here we go. Vegemite. Yes or no? Yes. <laughs> Resounding. Yes. <laughs> really. Yeah, well, you know, you didn't want a long-winded answer, but people have got to remember every every American I've ever got even to smell Vegemite nearly keels over and dies. <laughs> but it's a bit like you guys with, with jelly and peanut butter. I mean, we never had that. That's as repulsive to me as Vegemite. But we grew up, you, you, you don't even remember the first time you taste Vegemite as a kid. It's just what you have on toast, you know, in the morning. That's funny. So I love it. That's awesome. All right. Is Foster's Lager a real beer? Yes. Okay. <laughs> I always get a, a, a bunch of different answers that way. Yeah. Having having said that, uh, there's a lot of beers that became very popular, you know, through ads and everything that are more export beers. It doesn't necessarily mean they're the main beers that Aussies would drink. We have a lot of homegrown sort of brands that aren't necessarily available in the US and other places. But but yes, to answer your question, Foster's <laughs> is a real lager, a real beer. Nice. Okay. Does beetroot really belong on a hamburger? Absolutely. <laughs> Love it. That's like saying, it's like Vegemite and beetroot is like saying, does tomato sauce belong on a hamburger? Of course it does. <laughs> All right. Uh, who hit hardest? Jackie Chan, Sammo Hong, or Cynthia Rothrock? Sammo Hong by far. That guy can punch like a mule and kick like a mule. That was the most amazing thing. Jackie originally said to me, he said, Samahong, and it was a compliment in Chinese terms, of course. He said, he looks like an elephant but moves like a monkey, which was totally describing Samoan. You know, even though you're doing, you know, they're not full contact and everything, those Samo, man, he kicked me with that sidekick in Twinkle Twinkle Lucky Stars. He started on the other side of the room, and it's about 20 times. People only see the once, but you, you we literally do it 30 times. I look like one of those, you know, you see a squid in the water and they squirt ink and just shoot away from something. <laughs> I reckon yeah. that's what I looked like when he kicked me. That guy's as strong as I believe he could really fight, and you can just tell the power that Samo has. I have, I have such incredible respect for Samo Holmes. Uh, he moves so well, too. Yep. Um, okay, and uh, I'll, the last question, and I will edit it out if you get it wrong, of course, but what's your favorite podcast about kung fu and martial arts movies? <laughs> well, the very one I'm on now, Jeff. How could you <laughs> <I> say otherwise? <laughs> I mean, having having the, the sense and everything to have my good self on seals the deal, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's what I thought too, but thank you so much for saying it. <laughs> Um, what does the future hold for Richard Norton? Plug all the places where my audience and your fans can follow along with your next adventures. Yeah, that's a good question. I wish I knew. People are often saying, well, what are you doing next month? I said, I don't even know what I'm doing next week. The reason <laughs> being that the first thing I do know is I will be teaching martial arts of all forms that I am able to. That is a given. As far as movies and everything, I never know. The phone could ring today and I could be off somewhere tomorrow. That's the nature of the industry. We used to joke that 
producers think you have nothing else to do but sit waiting for the phone to ring for them to get you on a plane, but you just don't know um, what could come up. Like the gentleman that I work for, Guy Norris, no relation to Chuck, is an Australian that's been in the business forever as a second unit director and supervising stunt coordinator. Guy's really the one that gets to work, and I'm part of his team, so he's out there scouting around. We were supposed to do the next Guardians of the Galaxy, but that kind of fell apart with oh, wow. the problem oh. with uh, James Gunn and Disney. Yeah. Um, so something else will take its place. I just don't know what. I've got a couple of auditions coming up, but again, rather not even talk about them because until you're on the set and the first check clears, who knows? Sure. All right. So, and the, the, the website for your school again? Is www.richardnortonbjj.com. And I'd love to put out there that anywhere in the world, love teaching, love doing seminars. If anyone's got any interest in what I do and getting me out for a seminar, you know, you can always message me on Facebook. I don't, I've got, I'm full of friends. It's typical. I probably don't know 4,890 of them, but, <laughs> but but I can always be messengered uh, on, you know, Facebook Messenger if anyone's got any interest in uh, a seminar anyway and happy to do that because I, I absolutely love teaching so just putting that out there for whatever it's worth fantastic so available on facebook do you have any other social media that you use twitter instagram or anything like that uh, i'm on instagram yes instagram i'm, I'm starting to look i'm old school meaning a lot of it's a bit foreign for me but instagram always seems to get a lot of attention i'm not as up to date as probably others uh but i try and put some stuff on there as uh as readily as i can very nice very nice richard norton as always inspirational chat with you um it was always great seeing you on screen whether you were the bad guy or the good guy or or the guy just uh, taking that taking a beating so thank you so much for taking some time to talk with me so so much fun to have you and uh, I, I wish you the best with all your future projects and your school and uh keep kicking ass yeah thank you jeff very much appreciated and enjoyed having the chat so thank you and all the best to your podcast and all the future guests you have on thank you so much and i will uh, hopefully uh be in touch with you again very soon the next time that you're uh, kicking ass on screen you got it all right thank you my friend Big bunch of fanboy thanks to the one and only Richard Norton for spending some time with me. He continues to be a busy man, so if you want to keep tabs on him, check him out on Facebook or Instagram. And speaking of Facebook, if you want to have Richard host a seminar or teach some martial arts to your students, that's the best way to reach him to try to get something scheduled. As always, follow me on Facebook and Instagram as well, at Kung Fu Drive-In Podcast, or on Twitter, at Kung Fu Drive-In, where you can also catch up with my Castaways friends at the hashtag Castaways. Lots of great indie voices making great indie podcasts, so come on out and check them out. Till next time, Poison Clan. Peace. The 2018 UASE will take place Saturday, November 10th at AMC Theaters Times Square, featuring five theaters with over 60 hours of action content from 10 a.m. to 12 a.m. That's right, Action Junkies. We're having a 14-hour action film megathon showcasing the latest indie action film content and continuing last year's launch of Saturday afternoon Kung Fu Theater featuring Shaw Brothers Kung Fu Classics and honoring the 40th anniversary of Five Daily Venice. Please join the Urban Action Showcase Diversity and Action Initiative celebrating the past, present, and future most cultural achievements in the blockbuster action genre. As a platform, we advocate diversity and inclusion through our International Action Film Festival, Action Expo, and Action Film Awards platform to promote multicultural heroic images and 
order to change the dynamic of mainstream media. I invite you to be a part of the action by pre-purchasing a 2018 event pass for yourself or a friend. Master, Sanjay is finished. We can attack the city. Mm. Poison plan rocks the world. Shouting monks on their hands, running down the thousand stairs. The fate of Lee Khan now's in King Yu's hands. With the fearless idea to roaming over the land. Yeah, the little big soldier is older and wiser. He wants a world of peace because he doesn't want to fight. Yo, got the venom mob laying down the law. Bruce Lee delivered kicks, guaranteed to raise jars. Fight for the cars, then pass here. The blast on the end back kicks will defeat the outlaws. Very good, but boards don't hit back. Yeah, the death jewels here, Derry D is coming back. The Tai Chi master, Jelly's even faster. The channel little drink because he is the drunken master. Once upon a time in China, Rosamund Kwan is real fine, but see Maggie show his spiner. Golden Swallow has arrived. Chan Chi movies will the hero will survive. We've got the brave archer make his way to the top of the mountain, gonna fight, may as well pick his spot. Yeah, the sky goes black, cut the vampire's back. We've got Lam Ching Ying to kill them all to so stand back. He plays the black magic on the soul of the sword, and our sword will travel until his body's on floors. Yeah, Wing Chun Shaolin, the man is style. Yeah, the Defeat the enemy and watch him run for miles Blood will spill now on the mountain tops When we bring back the soul of the legendary pops Welcome to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war We smash the place up with our dragon claws We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action Drink a little wine, we're getting drunk and then we're fighting Ha! This time it's war We smash the place up with a dragon claw See it's a game of death yo You're facing the big boss It's once upon a time in China Counting the TikTok The Shogun Assassin Slash and blood just drip drop The head kick neck drop Balance the bone stop Wanna kill Bill Better get the assassins He's got her just in yellow But she is in the dragon But in the tea rooms That's where it'll happen She got the bodies on the floor When the blood it'll splatter Against the walls No fear at all To kill them all There's always blood spilled When you head into a war Fearless Unleash the fist of legend that the car jelly. I'm Bolo Young, yo, I'll always be a beast. You rumble in the Bronx, yo, I'm rumble in the streets. And it's simple, see the facts are these. It's only ever gonna be one Bruce Lee. Welcome to the tea house, ready for some action. Drink a little wine, we get it drunk and then we're fighting. Ha! This time it's war. We smash the place so with a dragon claws. We're walking to the tea house, ready for some action. Drink a little wine, we get it drunk and then we're fighting.